You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Aryeh Kamalar. Um, I have to say that uh, his works were, they weren't my entranceway into Hasidus, but when I discovered them, uh, I guess in my mid to late 20s, um, I I thought that they were just such, I, I, I sort of like devoured them like candy. Um, and he was a person, I think, that can be rightly uh, stated as a, a pioneer in many places, but also a pioneer in, in his style of writing. Um, perhaps he was not as uh, adept as Reb Zevin and others who later, you know, uh, sort of like elevated the, the genre. But it was clear when you read Rav Kamalar that you were dealing with someone who was uh, a lover of this language and a, a, a great lover of the people that he was presenting. I knew Rav Kamalar uh, through his writings on not only about the Gdo Achsidus, the Dordea, and, and these great, great men that he would give sort of like um, uh, you know, small you know, vignettes five, six, sometimes more, sometimes uh, uh, if it was someone of real great stature. But most of these, uh, bi- the little biographies that he wrote could be sort of consumed in a, in a small uh, time frame. Uh, but the work that really, to me, um, I, I kept on going back and back to uh, was his work on the Night of Yehuda, the Sefer Moifas Hador. And it was here that I that I realized that Rav Kamalar was not just a, a, a Hasidic um, uh, <laughs> propagandist uh, or a, a modernizer for Hasidus. He was actually someone who who really wanted to give over to this new generation, this 20th century population, the greatness and grandeur of 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 what Torah was and what Torah had been. And uh, I was therefore very pleased when Rabbi Paul, who joins us here, sent me a, a letter and saying, you know, you're dealing with Chassidish Poiskim, Chassidish Rabbonim. Perhaps you could take time to speak about Rav Yukusil Arye Kamalar. And I said, fine. And Rabbi Paul told me that it isn't just because he appreciated his farim. Uh, you have a, a, a real interest here, Rabbi Paul. So why don't you talk about why you wanted us to highlight Rav Kamalar? Um, well, it's a personal interest, not just because I really enjoy his writings, but my mother's father is a student of his in, um, from Reisha, from uh, the yeshiva he had there. And in the book, Sofilidoro, I saw my, fa- my grandfather's name mentioned as one of his students. And it was very like a, a, a link to a, a forgotten generation that was no longer existing from Europe where my mother, you know, escaped from as a child during the Holocaust. But before that time, um, Rav Kamalar was one of the Gedole Galicia, and he was um, in both in Reisha and before that in Stanislav. He was um, a trailblazer. You know, it wasn't common to have yeshivas back then. It wasn't common to do biographies. Nassim Abramowitz. Nassim Abramowitz, and he was a Jikover Chosid. Yes, he's from Jacob, Jeshev, that whole area, Reisha, that was where they were, um, Jacob was one of the family members of, of enough, the Rupschitz chain, which was from Natalia Rupschitz's family was Sons and um, Jacob and others, the Horowitz family. So 
the Reisharov and um, and the Zhikavarebi, that whole area was their area of influence. And Rav Kamalhar was close to the Zhikavarebi. They actually, interestingly enough, differed on whether you should spend time just focused on classical halacha, gemara, lamdis, sak, or you should uh, do something a little bit more for the masses, which was doing the biographies of Gedolim, the note of Yehuda that you mentioned, others. His last work was on the Rishonim. He was prolific, Rabbi Yehuda Chassid. I mean, he wrote on so many people because he thought having... You know, it's like almost the Heschel line. You don't just want textbooks, you want text people. But in lieu of text people, you describe them. And that was really, you know, we see a whole generation that was shaped by art scroll biographies. He was art scroll before art scroll became a thing. He was, the his biography was called Sofa Generation. My sense is, is that the yeshivas that he developed, based on his writings later, uh, and, and, and you know, were meant not just to be a continuation of what the old Chassidish yeshivas have been. Now, uh, I have to mention, of course, Sochachov and others, the, we talked about the Avni Nezer a number of weeks ago. They actually had a network of yeshivas. Um, and, but I think his yeshiva or Torah was, I, I don't know if they were learning secular studies, but he wanted to introduce what I would, I see as sort of like a, almost a scientific methodology in, uh, in terms of, what he was uh, in terms of what was going to be studied in the yeshiva it wasn't just we're just going to learn you know a blot a day which was the way my uh, my father my my father who learned in a yeshiva in europe he learned in sokolov and they did a blot a day uh they did it beyond or as best they could and they went on to the next page uh they spent one day i think what he was trying to do was see patterns right i think part of what he was trying to do was uh, to in, sort of like instill into the Hasidic young students to try to instill in them a uh, a, a comprehension of the way Shas works and yes. of rules and Chloya Shas. Yeah, which, if you look, yeah, if you look at his last work, his great work Talmud and Madoya Table, Talmud and the Wisdoms of the World, he both showed he tried to show how all the sciences of the world could be shed light upon by the Talmud, and he showed all the different approaches to learning Gemara as part of the introduction to that. The Aliba de Halacha, the Lumdus, the Svara, the Pilpul, the analysis. And he wanted to show that there were methodologies that you could abstract in a scientific method almost for how to approach Talmud study. If I just put it in one area, it's kind of a, to use a gross basketball analogy. The old West Coast offense of the Lakers was they didn't play defense. The best defense was a good offense. Unlike the standard Hasidic circle the wagons and become insular, he was showing how Torah could become the best offense and go outward and influence both the secular and the non-Jewish and the non-Hasidic world and the non-Yeshiva walls. And he wanted to prepare for students to be going out to be an Orla Amid. He, pre, he predated Chabad in this sense of go out and spreading you know if you're poly you're not polay if you give out in, in taste and you're not absorbing so he had an idea for the friedeker rebbe to go and say you should go out and teach uh to the masses the non-from people i think it was his way of preserving the old way was go out and be giving out instead of just defending from 
but yeah, but one sure. of the things I think he was uh, completely without admitting an inch that there was anything backward or negative about the Hasidic lifestyle. He actually was promoting that, and he believed that the Hasidic lifestyle and and the the avas of 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 the ideas that the Balshemtiv and the Talmidim developed was something that could go hand in hand with the modern world. I mean, this was something in a way that makes him a, a, a comparable to the Piasetzner in that way. You know, we know, yeah. again, I, I don't, to be honest, I, I don't see the type of, of, of uh, elevated ideas because I'm not that familiar with his literature that you see in the Piasetzner, the, 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 the emotional poetry of the Piasetzner, but the idea that See, this is not wrong for the new generation. See, this is actually the best option for the new generation with all the modern technique. And I think in that way, he and the Piasetzner share a, a, a love of language and, 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 and a confidence that this is going to work. Now, I know, uh, you know, I, I'm going to go through. Um, he uh, obviously he lived into the to the late 1930s. Um, I believe, right? I think he died in yeah. 1937. Um, so I, I know that he was very much moved by the 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 overwhelming uh, uh, uprooting, I would say, of of Jewish communities and what was happening during World War One and afterwards. What is it that he? What, what what is his approach as far as that goes? So I'll tell you a few things. Um, again, he was he was brisk before brisk was brisk. I mean, he. Uh, or at the same time, he kind of took the brisker idea of focus on Kachim or the Chafetz Chaim's idea of focus on Kachim so that you'll be ready to serve in the base of Mikdash. He literally saw the unfolding of returning to Israel as a precursor to the, the base of Mikdash. So much so, he has a mimer that we should reinstate the Anshe Maimid, the, the people who were not Kohanim in the base of Mikdash, who learned specific things, studied specific orders related to the base of Mikdash. And that would be creating a sensitivity and a renaissance in the area of Kachim. He also was a very big um, choker about the Yerushalmi Kachim issue that came up, and he decided to go heavily into it. He also wanted the Yerushalmi in general to be infused with the Bavli. And I think his, uh, he, has a, he has a tshuva in between the first volume of Talmud Umadaya Tebel and his Gemara Sefer, which is Yama Talmud, which is the uh, Libida Halacha Sugyas on Gemara, he has 13 volumes. I think only one volume of Brachas was published. In between there, he talks about why the Machlokas between Rav Shmuel Malover and the Chassam Sofer about bringing Karbonus Bismana Zeh. He basically says the door is not royally for it yet. Forget all the, the intricate reasons. We are not ready. And he brings Raya's from Gemara's. We're not ready for that. That's why you can't daven on Harabayas. He didn't go into the intricate details. Like he says, unless we're bar hachis to go on Harabayas, the tahara, and, and in the proper mindset, with the proper uh, approach, we won't be worthy of it. And, we, and he felt that we had to show ourselves worthy by investing intellectual um, you know, time and effort and money and resources into studying Kajim. Yeah. So it, it, whether, it's not clear about the Holocaust that was coming, but he definitely thought that the Jewish nation needed to think long and hard about what the war meant. The fact that you could have such a, 
uh, we say in Yiddish, Ayiberteranish, a complete revolution where communities were uprooted and 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 and, and Rabbonim uh, were impoverished and, and yeshivas were closed. I think he it seems that he believed that should call for a cheshbon anefesh uh, yes. of the whole Jewish community. And I think what you were trying to say is that the learning kachim and other things is sort of a way to to move all of us out of this European Gullus mentality to an idea that we that that perhaps the geula was imminent. Would you yeah. say that? Would you say that? I, I think that? I think so. He wasn't a mashiachist, but he certainly saw the 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 echoes of the churning of Hashkafa. World War One influenced him greatly, and with that upheaval, he saw that it was important for there to be more unity among the Haredim. He says the reason why secular Zionism is successful and they're being more successful than the from communities is because they're unified and we're not. Period. In fact, he wanted to represent Rav Cook's Degel Yushalayim, the idea of a non-political approach to reestablishing a settlement in Israel. And he said he was, it was held against him that he was from Galicia. He wasn't a Litvak. He wasn't from Russia. He wasn't from the more well-known communities. And it, he, it, it pained him. He saw that the Jewish people, especially from Jewish people, have to be priyagoda, you know, unified. And yes, he saw very much the the ikvus of the Mashiach coming. Whether he knew it was in anything more in Europe that was going to be dangerous, I don't think so. But he eventually went to New York to be a rav there, and then at the end of his life in Jerusalem, he ended. Up- and he did have a relationship with Rav Cook, correct? What was his? Yeah. And you say that he, he he wanted to join Rav Cook in Rav Cook's vision for Degel Yerushalayim, which was not Aguda and not Mizrahi. Correct. It was it was a it was a much more, um, I guess what you would call it is uh, authentically based program. He less he, political. He, yes, he did not want to be. A, he didn't. It wasn't so much to for political power. It was very, uh, I, I guess, um, optimistically uh, hoping that when Bnei Teira and, and 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 throughout from Chassidim and 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 all the different uh, maflagot, uh, they'd be able to uh, perhaps unify together under the flag of Torah. Uh, yep. Was but do you think there were, were ways that Rav Kamalar differed with Rav Cook? Do you think he goes yes. hand in hand with him? Yes, he was less generous in his opinion of the secular Zionist movement than movements than Rav Cook was. He was also approached by the Mizrahi. He wasn't so enamored with it. He didn't like the political organizations in general that were secular, and he was very you know kabdeu v'chadsheu. He he wanted to be Makari, but he didn't want to be influenced to the negative. So I think Rav Cook was a little bit more open to embracing the Sad Tov in those things. And he was more at arm's length, even though he did recognize that they were very powerful and effective organizations. You, know, you talk about, we talk about Rav Kamalar, um, what these upheavals meant for people who came from traditionalist families. He talks, I know there's a, a, a discussion that he has about the soldiers who through, because of their army service, had to sort of live a non-Jewish life. Uh, what, 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 is he, what is he, what was his attitude towards that? 
Very similar to the Chavetz Chaim, try to avoid it. But if you get conscripted, you still have to remain faithful to the best of your ability. He, he was not an all or nothing person. He was very realistic about the, the buffering of the traditional communities by the winds of the time. And I think he realized that he had to be, um, you know, realistic about what could be accomplished in things. So he was a pragmatic person in the sense that he did adjust himself to the realities of situations like being in the army. And he did try and uh, get people out of it. But when they were there, he was very much like the Chavetz Chaim. You have to do the best you can to, uh, to stay faithful to the Torah. And then afterwards, he would, you know, welcome back with open arms, as opposed to judge those who were not, not necessarily as from. You know, we, we, this series is called Chassidah Shepsak. And, and besides coming from, we're, we're very strong against, against uh, their co-religionists, so to speak, was Machine Matzah. Was, oh, yeah. right. So what, what was, uh, where was Rav Kamalar as far as that goes? Well, you have to know that was the center of the controversy. The, the Yosef Shal, Rav Yosef Shal Nassensen and Nathanson, who was uh, okay with or pro-Machine Matzahs and Rav Shlomo Kluger, and the, those who were against machine matzahs, this was ground central, Galicia, Raisha, the that area was where there was a big tumult going on in that part of Poland. Yeah. He was very pragmatic, and he said that, you know, yesh v'yesh, that as long as it's done well, it wasn't only this or only that. And that's one of the unique qualities of him as a Hasidic rabbi. He wasn't dogmatic about my way is the only way, which sometimes can be a hallmark of some Hasidus. Mine is the right way. Our Hasidus is the right way. My Rebbe has the most genuine Masora. He was a pragmatist in halacha in the sense that he didn't get hung up on being married to only the machine matzah or the, or the hand matzah, even though he was a traditionalist. And he himself, uh, someone, someone was upset at me once. Ramosha um, Greenis Setzal was a friend of my grandfather's. And he said, if your grandfather... What? If your grandfather knew that you'd be eating machine matzahs, he'd roll over in his grave because yeah. his Rebbe, Rev Kamalhar, was a hand matzah-only person. So I said to him, if my grandfather made the matzahs, I'd eat them. I'm just concerned about, I don't know who's touching my matzahs. So it, it, it's, it's, there were things, echoes that I heard my grandfather say that I could almost see in the writings. My grandfather, for example, not to make it personal, when there were Jews from Poland that came to England. I think it's his last entry in uh, is the is the Divrei Chaim. And of course, the Divrei Chaim was considered the Reish uh, HaPoiskim in his time among the Chassidim. And he yeah. answered the machine matzah yeah. uh, uh, completely. Um, Benny, is, is, is there any... Um, uh, is that, would that have been like a, a, a traitorous act? To for a, a person who called himself a chassid uh, to to be matter machine matzah, from the way you're looking at it, Benny, on the sense that the chassidish rebbes who passed in that way were coming from a uh, uh, they were coming from a a, a place that were, uh, was unassailable, and yeah. uh, it, it, could it be that Rav Kamor was missing that because for many that's sort of like the red line. Yes, be honest, be brilliant sometimes, uh, be inventive, but there's a certain... Well, I didn't catch one of them. Yeah, so I'm saying, Benny... Well, not all Chassidim were... Uh, were, uh, were uh, I mean, the Debechayim obviously had uh, had a tremendous amount of weight because of his uh, stature, 
but not all chassidim were uh, were opposed to machine matzah. There were chassidim who were uh, who were on the material side. Uh-huh. Right. And, so, and again, you you have to understand, he probably was a Jikiver Chassid, but I don't think he was Kafuf only to the Jikiver Rebbe. I think he yeah. he had been an independent Gadol Batar himself, much like a Rebbe Menachem Zemba and Ger. I, I don't think he, yeah. he would be Kofit to the Rebbe, but he had his own Chuvas, he had his own Tzvarim, he had his own Yeshiva. It was a little different stature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that the... Um, you know, many times, you know, the when we talk about uh, people who are popularizers uh, and, 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 and they help people like ourselves, like me and Rabbi Paul and others who weren't necessarily raised in the Shmaltz of Chassidus. Um, so we see them as our connection to Chassidus. The, the, I wonder, was he part of you know, like when the Chassidus Sharabonim would want to discuss a, a, a Shaila, when there was Asifas, was did they automatically want to include Rav Kamalar? Was he part of theirs? I get the sense that he was not. Um, again, defense, probably. Uh, what can I can I grow through his quote on machine monsters? I have it here. Okay, go ahead. Of course, he says very quickly. He says the Gon Roshomer Kluger asked them. The Rav Yosef Shal from Lavav matured them. He says Sedekayim Shneim. They were both right. Elo Elo Divrei Kim Chaim. He says. Machine matzahs are kosher, and there's no chashash chametz to them, but they are missing the tam of matzah shel mitzvah, meaning mitzvah bo yosem bishlucho, and they are the, 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 he says lechem osher, instead of, le, it's the, instead of lechem money, it's the, the wealthy man can buy them, and they're, 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 they're having the atzlus of, of, of resting and not being matriach to personally cook the mitzvahs, of the matzah yourself. That's how he wrote. Right. So it sounds like, in other words, the question of whether pushing a button uh, makes it lishma or not, he seems to be skirting that. But it wasn't he, his that, issue. It was his being involved personally in the production as opposed to delegating it to someone else and buying it, you know, off the shelf. Um, right. Now, he, I said his yeshiva was... Um, in, in America, he was aware of, of, of Yeshiva College that was that was uh, rising. And he was oh. no. He he said some sharp things about Yeshiva College. That what did he say about him? Even though the Talmud is very very much a source of uh, you know Mada and wisdoms of the world, he felt that mixing together college and Yeshiva, you'll not succeed in one and you'll not succeed in the other. And he was critical of it somewhat um, in his you know drushos and Shabbos that he gave. Because he went the, at the end of the day, you, it's like the Dodgers in Brooklyn. You know, you could take the Hasidic Rebbe out of Europe, but you can't take Europe out of the Hasidic Rebbe. And he, he, it was, it was painful of YU or Yeshiva College. But I think what he is really reflective of the fact that he wanted an expansion of the Yeshivas in general. He wanted yes. more, he wanted the Yeshivas to be more Mada, more scientific, but be completely, be yep. completely within Torah study. Hundred um, percent. But what he didn't want was to actually teach the sciences and to teach uh, to teach wisdoms that would ready students for a parnosa. You would think, though, he understood that this was a new door and this was a generation that needed uh, parnosa. I, I I don't know. Uh, did you was there anything that you've seen in his writings that like what did he expect? to happen if they weren't going to go to university. But you got to remember in the ninth in the post World War 1 even in New York and and in Europe before World War 1 
it was mainly an agrarian and 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 you know a blue collar society there were not that many from academics from lawyers from doctors that were remaining from so from that lens it wasn't so common for in a Hasidic shtetl or even in a yeshivish place in a Hasidic community in Brooklyn that it, it was it was prior to that era when that was common so i think he was right before that happening although it was pretty bold of him to say that the Talmud and the the hundreds of scientific disciplines are related to each other and shed light on each other you know well one of the things was I had been aware of the parish uh the parish uh Hashas of Rosh Hashanah for many years and uh it was surprising to me to see that to remember to remind myself that this was a manuscript that he uh somehow salvaged from somewhere And um, he pushed, I think it was eventually only published in the lifetime of his son, not in his lifetime, but it was something that he was pushing for. And that, you know, you talked about his work on Rabbi Yudah Chassid and the Hasidic Ashkenaz, um, you know, to to be involved in Kisveyad, uh, the way he was, takes obviously a very um, uh, much more of a scientific approach yeah, uh, an, an an approach of being a carefulness, a, a diaconess. Um, I was talking to uh, to some people earlier, and they shared my. I think it's pretty much been debunked that it is the Rambam uh, who is this writer. But uh, I think we need to be makertov that he pushed for this Xaviad, uh, another piece of analytic material to use. When it comes to Masechtas Rosh Hashanah, he might have been yeah. wrong in this description. I think you said he was uh, excited about the forged Yerushalmi Kachim too, right? Yeah, he didn't. He wasn't sure whether it was real or not. I think he just he gave the benefit of the doubt to the author because he didn't have any definitive one way or the other, and he felt rescuing manuscripts and publishing them was very important. In that sense, he's in the mold of a Rabbi Herschler or even maybe a Yitzchak. Five thirty, Chuvot from him. Uh, does that turn him into a uh, a meshiv or that people would turn to? I would say, honestly, even though I'm calling this Chassidah Shepsak, he was not. However, he did um, weigh in on this question. Um, this was a question that the dates that I've discovered were the 1930s, but it's clear to me that this was a question that was bubbling over already in the beginning of the 20th century. And this is the question. I think, Rabbi, just to clarify, I think when he was in Stanislav, when he was the Rosh Hashiva, he was also serving on the Bastin. Unlike when he was in elsewhere in his career, I don't think he would have had as much uh, like people going and asking typical Shilas to. So I think it was different periods in life, probably on and off. Right. I, I, you know, Alicia, and I think, you know, Benny, you, 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 can, you could um, confirm this. Many times, you know, the water finds its level. It's it's so hard to figure out who becomes an address that people send Shilas to. Uh, yep. It's it, yep. it, it isn't just like putting your shingle out and, and all of a yeah, sudden and, you're and going to be getting Shilas. So and he himself said it was unusual that there were certain big that I saw about in this period were from the early 1930s. It's clear to me that this Shila came up as soon as the more modern um, re- reaction to infectious diseases. And that, of course, was quarantining a person who had been infected. And then because of the ignorance, they would err on the side of caution in terms of 
burning anything that that person had worn or had come into contact to during the time of their illness. And therefore, they had people, Jewish men, who had to be, whether it was typhus or some other disease, who had to be hospitalized or put into some quarantine area. And the question was, could they ask for their tefillin? Could they have their tefillin? Because they knew that if the Rabboni Shalom would give them the refuah, they would leave, but everything that was with them needed to be ster- more than sterilized, had to be burnt. That was the, that was what was, uh, that was the Shiloh. Now, again, this question uh, is, is found in some of the great uh, Galician or Poiskim of that period, um, the Dave of Meisharim, uh, Rabbi Dave Beresh his brother, uh, uh, the Chazanochum, they both have this Shiloh. I found it in, in another Sefer as well, the Imre David. So, and in fact, the Imre David, Rabbi David Horowitz writes that this is a question that, that's making the rounds. It, it was a Shila that was new because they're in, up until the early and mid part of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, there wasn't this type of hospitalization. It was only then that because of the medical, the reaction of the medical community that the Shiloh came up. Can we send the person this villain if we know it's going to get burnt? So he says, He said, what's usher now? It's only what's going to happen later. They're going to burn it later. But right now there's a mitzvah. Aye. Later. He's going to want to leave, and they'll say, I'm sorry, Rabid. We're going to take all your possessions and burn them, including these, this sack of tefillin that you have. He says, you're an onus. Onus rachmona patre. You can't stop that. And he says that it's based on a famous machlekas Ramban and Balamor, the Sugin Rebelezer de Mila, that we know that you're allowed, because you know the bris mila is happening, uh, you're allowed to have the hot water. And uh, you should get the hot water, of course. Uh, you can wash the baby in hot water. It's, it's pikuach nefesh. And you should have the hot water before the bris. Now, the, um, uh, let's say the, the hot water spills, and there now is no hot water. So um, what, what are you going to do? If you, you ha- it's, the, it's Shabbos. It's the day of the bris. But if you, if you mal him, you're now going to have to boil water again. So, if you so we know that this is only a hechsher for mila, right? It's not the mila itself. So, lechora, if we're going to do the mila, you're going to have to be docha shabbos. So maybe we should not do the bris. Because the water has spilled, we don't have the hot water, and now we're going to be in a matzav of pikuach nefesh, maybe we should just hold off on the mitzvah of mila, since we know we're going to have to be mavashel, the mayim. So the Ramban says that it's mutter. Why? Because right now there's a mitzvah to have a bris. There's a mitzvah of yemashmini. And therefore, even though you know there's going to be a dechia, so that's later. That's a din in pikuach nefesh. So Lechora, Rav Kamalar says, that we have to look just at the fact that a yid has to wear tefillin every day. 
Vata ain't shumiser. And later, okay, I'll be an onus. That'll be two weeks from now when I'm hopefully better and I can leave the hospital. That's not me. I'm an onus. So he says, it would seem to be correct. He says, I wrote in my Sefer Chedvah the Shmaita, where he tries to not just have Shekava things to say, but he tries to develop halachic principles. The same Ramban that he's mentioning before, although I believe a scholar would have said that this Chuvas HaRamban is really not the Ramban, because the Chuvas HaRamban, I believe, are uh, from the Rashba. It's the Mucheses, right? I don't think there is, uh, I don't think we have uh, a true collection of Chuvas Ramban. They were for years known as Chuvas Ramban, but they are really, uh, those are really from the Rashba. But anyway, but the, the pseudo Ramban says in the Chuva, a rotsum can't be ones. If you create a situation of ones, then that's not an ones, that's rotsum. That's the Yisod of the Rashba. That if later, if you know an ones is going to occur, then you can't say that, hmm, because of this, uh, uh, I was an ones. You created the situation that led to an ones. You developed it into an ones. So therefore, it basically is rotsum. That is the Lushan of the Rashba. Rav Kamalar brings a beautiful riot to this from the Gemara by Esther. The Gemara says that Esther, of course, every time uh, she had to have relations with Ahasuerus, she didn't want to. If she agreed, it's because she knew she faced the threat of death. So she was an Ones completely. Because she was Ones, so since Mordechai was not a Kohen, technically Esther was still Mutter to Mordechai because her, her relations with this non-Jew were all based on Ones. So the Shaila is, why is it, if that's true, why is it that Esther, when she says, Kasher of Aditi of Aditi, she says, now that you want me to go in and ask to sort of seduce Ahasuerus or to get him in the mood to have relations with me, why would that make her usher? Because now when, at, at that point, Esther is now, even though she, she can't resist, because isn't the relation a relationship of Ones? Because she can never say no once she gets Ahasuerus in the mood. So you see from there, Rav Kamalar says, the episode of the Rashba, <laughs> that when you create the situation that now becomes Ones, even though you, it's, it has a din of Ratzon completely. So therefore, he says, since you want your Tefillin and you're bringing your Tefillin here, you're, that's not a situation of Ones, that's a situation of Ratzon. Now, this, I have to tell you, the Tzushtel to the Ramban, in in the Rebuzer de Mila was done by other was done by the the uh, uh, the Rav Chibin as well, uh, the David Misharim. He also um, made that comparison. But this next proof I did not find it so far in the other Achronim, and that was a, and this really shows you I, I, that 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 he was looking he was really going beyond uh, the page of what you normally would have looked at. He says we have. Uh, a Mishnah in Nazir. The Mishnah in Nazir says that a um, the Mishnah in Nazir says that an Evid, an Evid Knani, 
if he, even though he has the right in a way to be Makabal Nazirus, but his Odon can stop him from being knowing his Nazirus. The Darshan Apostolic, Isra al Napsho, and Eved really is not the owner of his Nefesh. His Nefesh is really owned by someone else. That owner does not want an Eved who's not drinking wine. You have to realize this wasn't about becoming drunk. This was about being a stable uh, person with strength and with attitude, with happiness. That's what you want out of your Eved. You don't want an Eved who's sickly. Perrier and orange juice weren't an Eitzah. Wine was what was needed. And therefore, the master has a right to be mocha and stop his Eved from drinking any wine. The Mishnah in, 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 in Nazir speaks about an Eved that runs away or the master is away for a long time. So he has made a neder. He's, made, he's, he's been makabal nazirus, but there's something stopping the practical aspect of that nazirus occurring. What is that? The master doesn't let that, but now the master's gone. So what's the halacha? It's a machlekas, Rav Meir and Rav Yossi. What happens to the Evid in that case? So Rav Meir says, even though his master's not here, and he, he was makabal nazirus, lo yishteh. Hmm. Well, is that because he's still a nausea? No. Really, it's Bishvil Now I have to tell you what Rav Kamalar is quoting is the Ibn um Eov, I believe. I think it's the maybe it's uh, the translator of the Parisha Mishnah. Uh and I'm not sure if it's if it's Ibn Tibbin or not. I'm 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 blanking, but it was a, a, a translator, a provincial translator from Provence who translated the Parish of Mishnayis into Lashon HaKodesh. The Rambam in the Parish of Mishnayis, according to this translation, wrote that Rav Meir says that he shouldn't be drinking wine. This is Rav Meir's opinion. He shouldn't be drinking wine, even though the master is not here, because we want him to actually go into a funk. We want him to be upset. We want him to, to, to feel negative about this nether that he made to be a nausea. And this way, even though he ran away, he's going to say, I don't like this. I want to go back and become my, an Evid again. So, where my master can force me to drink wine again. So, this is a brilliant comparison that Rav Kamalar has just made. Here we have a person who is being told, go against. <laughs> you're Nazirus, right? I, I'm sorry. Be really, you should not be drink. You should drink wine because your Rebbe, your master, doesn't want you to drink wine. So, even though technically the Nazirus is chal, what you're going to do is get yourself into a funk that you hate where you're doing because you're gonna be, you're gonna just not drink wine, and you're gonna say, "I, I'm gonna just go back and have my." master force me to drink wine again. So even though he's in a matzav where he's not doing an aver, he's actually doing a mitzvah of keeping his nazirus, be, the, the Rav Meir was miyayetz, and, and the Raman Paschal's like this, that he should not drink wine in order that he should be forced to return to his, to, to the Rav to be machriachim. So he says, that sounds like he says that sounds like it's against the Rashba. 
it sounds you you're not supposed to be misavive in yourself and ones. So how could Rav Meir say lo That's not called ones. That's called rotzon. Since he's in a situation where he could stay away from his master, he's forcing himself to go back where now he has no choice but to drink wine against the Isser Naziris. He says the Evid is basically Muzer bin Naziris. The only thing is when, when the master is there, that's an Ones that stops it. So here he is not in the situation of Ones, but he pushes himself into a situation of Ones. That is the Rav Kamal Arschap. I, I don't think anybody would have connected that would have thought to look in, in, in Mesechtas Nazir, in this case, and to see a connection. Now, he's doche, the, the question, he says it's Torachian, but he says, when I looked at the Rambam in the, uh, in the, in the Mishnah Torah itself, he didn't say, Kedeshi Yachricheno. He used, Kedeshi Yitzdayer B'yachser Rishus Rabba. Now, what's the difference? So he wants to say that in the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam altered his an approach of Rav Meir. It isn't that, that you're being forced to drink wine against the Yisr. The Ramam holds that Rav Meir holds that an Eved, because of the power of his Rebbe, of his Odon, the nether in the Ziris really isn't there. It's, he's, he's always Bershus the Odon even though he's run away. So therefore, his Rebbe is, the Roshos of Adon is always there. The truth is, even though he's not here, it's like his Rav is here. But how are we going to get him physically back to his Adon? We constant the Eved by making him not drink wine in order for him to go back. But really, the Rav Meir isn't saying that it's, it's a hechrach. It's not that you're going against an Isser. Really, the way this halacha works is that a, an Eved is really not chayiv in his iris at all. And he's still, why is he chayiv? Because his, wherever he is, his Odon is there. So it's not like he's away from the Odon and now he's potter and he's being putting himself in a situation of Hechrach. He's be'etzim in a situation where he's able to drink wine because we know the Odon wouldn't want him to. So he says the Parsha Mishnah is, he pushes it away because of what it says in the Mishnah Torah. Then he brings another Raya. And this one is, is, is again, uh, an incredible Raya. The, the, the question is about it's about a Bechor of Shvius. Now, how can you have a Bechor of Shvius? It seems to be impossible, right? Shvius is about stuff that grows from the ground, not about animals. However, if you trade or sell Peiro Shvius for a pregnant animal, then that pregnant animal gets the halacha of whatever the parish fears for. Those that have done the dafyomi a couple of weeks ago, remember that this was one of the discussions for a couple of pages in the sugya about a schorah beperish fears. It's coming up right now, so we have to know about this. So if you were socher beperish fears, and what you were socher is what was, was an animal, so now that animal has a sense of kedusha shvius. So what's wrong? The problem is, is that if it's a bechor, 
part of that animal is going to become a carbon. It is going to become a carbon. And part of it is going to go on the Mizbeach. And we know when it comes to Shvius, it has to be totally eaten by human beings. There can't be edible parts of something that's Shvius that gets burnt even for God. So therefore, Rav Chista says that if you have a behemoth Shvius, there's no Din Bechor on that behemoth. Now, he says, what do you see from here? Remember, this is a, a pregnant mother. The, this is the firstborn baby. So right now, you should allow that baby to be born, treat it as a Bechor, raise it, give it to the Kohen, to treat it like a Bechor completely. Now, that's the mitzvah. Now, it's true. Later in the future, it's gonna, what's going to happen? You're going to have to put the Imurim on the Mizbeach. Right? So, okay, when you get there, then it'll be a shy of what to do with it. Look how we compare the tefillin, right? Right now, I've got this mitzvah of having a bachar. Now, it's true, because it happens to be a bachar, quote-unquote, of shvius, part of its body cannot go on the mizbeach. Okay, let's wait. Isn't there already a hanhag of kedushas bachar in this animal uh, in terms of being oser, begiza, v'avoda, right? And it's even possible it might not ever even get to the Mizbeach. It's possible it might get a mum, right? And still, what does the Gemara say? What does Rav Chista say? Rav Chista says that it doesn't, you, you, you don't give it Kedushas Bechor at all. Now, how does it not get Kedushas Bechor is a question, because it's going to be Kaddish. One thing you can do is sell it to a guy. You can sell part of the Uber to a guy, or you could, you could reach into the, into the animal in utero and give it a mum. Those are ways that you take away the, the, the Kedushas Bechor of, the, uh, of this Bechor of Shvius. But L'chorah, it's very similar to the case of Tefillin. Because from here it would seem you know that the Tefillin are going to end, end, end up being burnt. So because of that, we should, you should be potter from wearing Tefillin. The same way we potter you from Hanhogas Bechor which is being noyeg kedushas bechor, because we know what it's going to end up becoming. In the same way, Rav Kamalar was reasoning that we should patter you from tefillin, right? Because, so, so, so far we have two tzadim to aser. One tzad is, it's not an ones. That's his first heritage. And, and, the, and there's no raya from the Mishnah for, in the Gemara in Nazir against that, right? That's one raya, because an ones that you create is not an ones. The second proof against bringing in the tefillin would be the Gemara in Bechayres about Bechor Shoshvius. Again, think about what he just did, right? Think about uh, what a normal Pesach would have dealt with this Shaiva, where he would have gone. He would have gone to Osir uh, to destroy a, a Kodesh, he would have gone to the Isser of, of, of breaking down a shul, right? Here he's gone to Bechayrois, he's gone to, uh, to, to Nazir, this is the place where he's developing this halacha. Now, he says, since you know you're going to destroy the tefillin, so there shouldn't be a mitzvah tefillin if you know that's what it's going to lead to. Um, so, he answers this, and he's going to come up to be Mako. You'll see in a minute. Um, 
He says, Lechora, he says, if you look in, in Bechoros, Tosfus asks a question. Tosfus asks a question that, what about, the, what about a Korban Omer? The Korban Omer, he says, that um, it's Rabbeinu Tam's Kasha and Bechoros. Lechora, if there's an Omer, is, gets from Sfichei Shvius. In other words, let's say the Korban Omer is, is, is we know there's an Isra Sfichim the Rabbonon on everything that grows during the Shemitah year. So Lechora, the barley that grew, has an Isra Sfichim. Now, what does that Isra Sfichim mean? So, first of all, there's an Isra Achila, because we were choshesh that everybody's gonna, we, we made an Isra Sfichim that it should be Osr Bachilim and Rabbonon, but we also included that it has, whatever it is, even if you're not eating it, you can't destroy it. So Lechora, if you have a Korban Omer that was developed, that came out of Sfichei Shvius, it would now have the Isser of L'Ochel of Le'Eva So the same way Rav Chista is worried about a Bechor getting, getting its Emurim burnt on the Mizbeach, the Omer has a Komate that's going to go on the Mizbeach. Hmm. So therefore, and yet we still bring the Omer. So Rabbeinu Tam asks, how can you bring an Omer from Beirish Vias, if Rav Chista is right? It's, it's L'Ochla, the lowest Reifa. So um, Rabbeinu Tam says, well, maybe the Nafkamin is, by Omer it says, you got to bring Omer every year. <laughs> you don't have to bring a Bechor. There could be, you, on Shvias, maybe, there doesn't have to be a Bechor all the time. But when it comes to the Omer, the Torah says you got to bring an Omer every single year that you have a Beis Amikdash, even during Shvius. So it's Xeris Akosim. But Lechaira, the um, um, the the Rabbeinu Tam says Lechaira could still bring a Raya that you are able to to bring a, a Bechor as well. Is 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 it really so different? We know the mitzvah Bechor is knowing constantly. So why, why does Rav Chista say you don't do a Bechor, and yet you, you bring a Korban Omer? So, Rav, so here he comes to be Metaritz Rabbeinu Tam's Kasha, and, and he's going to paskin in the case of Tefillin. So he says, The Bechor, you're able to be Mafkia the Kedusha, as I said before. But you can't by making a Mum. By Omer, though, it's impossible uh, to, to stop it not being an Omer. Why? Because you're mechuyiv to have an omer. So there's no way you can have a year without an omer. So he says, well, fizeh, you could say, a chola can't be mafki himself from the mitzvah of tefillin. You have that mitzvah. Where it comes to bechor, if you never have a bechor born in your eder, there's no mitzvah's bechor. If you never have a bechor that, that's born by you, so there are no bechorim. If Goyim automatically own everything the Jews own, there is no Bechor. All right, Nebuch. But Tefillin has to be. And if there's Tefillin around, Ayid has to wear Tefillin. And you're Mechuyiv in wearing Tefillin. You can't be Mafkiyah that Chiyiv. So Rabbeinu Tam was right. The Omer, even without Lidoro Seichem, there needs to be a carbon. So therefore, we can learn out from Omer, like Rabbeinu Tam's Kasha, that you've got to wear Tefillin every day. And even though, just like by the Omer during Shvius, even though you're going to end up in a way being over an Isser, 
an Isra, lava or whatever it is, of destroying part of the Korban Omer, giving it to Gvoa, going against Kedusha Shvius, still you do it because you have the mitzvah now, and what happens later isn't relevant. The same thing now, you have a mitzvah of tefillin, even though you know what's going to happen is you're going to be over the Avera of destroying the Shemus Hashem, Lo Sasun came. So and this is what he uses to basically start it off Asring with Lumdus, and now he's coming to be Matir. Then he gets into what, the way I would have answered the question, which is without any, because I'm not a Bucky and I wouldn't be able to compare this, but then I would have said it's only a Gram Avera <laughs> because Lamaisa, he's not burning it. Who's burning it? The Mishar say the Nachrim. So we know that when, it's, when, you're, when you're being Meichik, the shame, not directly, the Gemara about being Toivo in Shabbos, where you have a shame, a tattoo written on your name, uh, on, on your body. So we know that it's considered a gram. It's not considered a direct mechika. So Lachar, that's one thing. It's not a direct destruction, even though Nebuch, the Tefillin, are going to go up in flames. Um, so therefore, um, that's where I would have said it. And, and as he says it, it's a goyrem v'goyrem de goyrem. Because first of all, you, you're bringing the Tefillin is only a goyrem in itself. And secondly, it's not going to be destroyed by you or another Jew. It's going to be destroyed by a guy. And it's since it's a suffix when you bring the tefillin in. Why? And here he comes with, this is probably the best chap. I don't know if anybody else came up with this chap, but this was the best chap. It's also possible, first of all, because before you leave the hospital, you know what you can do? Take the partios out of your tefillin and hide them. And all they're going to burn are the batim. Now let's undo the undo the batim, take out the parshios that have the shem hashem. It's true the tefillin has the shem hashem in itself, the shin dalin and yud, but that's only one shame. And therefore, you're only it's only going to be one shame, even though it's considered a shame mamish a kedusha batsim. But most of the shemos that we're worried about are the ones that are written on the cloth and the parshios. And those you can hide, and you won't necessarily have a problem of, of, of them getting burnt. But he says, Hashem Yishmerenu. So I, I think here, and, and, and I'm going to speculate that part of what was going on, I, I think you see is his, uh, his Golitzianer uh, way of thinking. Not exactly, you know, uh, I don't know if it's classic Galicia, Ben, I don't know, but it is, no, but it's definitely a Golitzianer type of approach of dealing with a Shila. Um, but I think there was something else here. And no, very good. Yeah, very good. No, no, Ben? I think so. It's like Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Classical, yeah. 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 I, but I think there's something else here. And you can tell me, I want everybody in Gershon, whoever's here, I think part of it was he didn't want to take away from this these people the 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 this the Yiddish guide of being able to wear tefillin in their in their illness. Now, I don't know, again, that there's something, you know, if you look at, I, I get this approach because I, when I looked in the, in the Chabiner's Psak, I didn't go through it totally, but there, the, 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 there were some people said, oh, he's an Oynus, and an Oynus is if it's, he wore the tefillin, and it's as if he wore tefillin, because, and, and the Chabiner wrote, no, an Oynus can make you potter from a lav, but an Oynus can't give you the mitzvah. Right, so I, I have a uh, sense. Of, no. Right, right. It's not like you're in the mitzvah. Okay, the rabbi will give you a pass, 
but to still felt the mitzvah tefillin. And, and I got the sense from the Tribuner's Pesach, and I think you can see this here, although he doesn't say it, and I think this might conclude why this is like a chassidish Pesach, is that by the chassidim, the idea of, of taking away from a yid his tefillin, that he shouldn't be able to be oiches his tefillin and wear them, and, and, and he should spend maybe weeks and months in a hospital, that was like an anathema to them. Right, the, even though what's going to happen is they're going to be burnt, like the tefillin are going to go up in flames. Just and again, this is my parallel to the whole European world. Yes, in a way, the modern world encroaching, the the anti-Semitism encroaching, but and in a way, a lot of that, a lot of that, those shemos, and, and a lot of those binyanim and those batim and parshios went up in flames, and were destroyed. But 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 the bishas ma'isa, you still have to be malbish the tefillin. You you still in as much as you know that end was near and coming, but you can't take away what those moments were of 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 of, ex, of ecstatic avodas Hashem wearing the tefillin and how much that would mean. So despite the fact that we that it was in the rearview mirror, so to speak, what the European life. That again, maybe I'm really pushing the metaphor here, but I, but I, but but I think, yeah, <laughs> but but there is the idea of yeah, we don't take the tefillin away. It's we, it's important halachically for the for those poskim to come out to allow those kranker to have their tefillin with them. And again, I, I open it up to to the Ilam here, if, if, Alicia. What do you think? You have to unmute yourself. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.